Being a, being a pastor is a strange thing. Most people have no idea what we do or why we would do it. Uh, many times when introducing myself as a pastor, and I hardly ever lead with that because it gets so many different reactions. But when it inevitably comes up, a frequent question is, and that's it? Like you mean like full time? Yes. And you find enough to do, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most times. It's a strange thing, and probably you would, have to, you would have to volunteer beside vocational ministers to know what it's actually like. That's just the way life is. We begin down certain journeys because we think it's going to be easier than it is. You ever had that discovery? Anybody who's ever been married knows that, right? <laughs> Anybody who's ever had a child, anybody who's ever had finally the job they think they want given to them discovers that it's not ever what you think it is. But pastoring, vocational ministry is especially strange. When you meet strangers, and it happened again just last week, I was volunteering with some people and I had this conversation probably for the 15th or 20th time since we moved back to California. When you're meeting somebody for the first time, after the first name, that you introduce yourself by, what is a common question that people ask? What do you do? And I have to say, I'm a pastor. And the guy last week said, huh, I don't really like pastors. So, again, I've heard this. I'm, I'm not shocked. Uh, it's, it's a little abrupt, you know. Um, but I was reliably told in the, first, uh, in the first service that there are a few other professions that get that, including the dentist. Okay, so I'm in good company. Now, my standard answer, because that happens more often than you would think, I say, well, I, I totally get that. There's quite a few I don't care for either. And there's good reason for that. And if you followed recent church news in the United States, you know that's true. It's a sad thing. But especially now with 24-hour coverage, with everybody being able to go to social media instantly, the bad behavior of preachers, pastors, and people who represent Jesus in some way has never been more publicly displayed as atrocious. Thankfully, it's not everybody. Candidly, it's not that many. It's like so many other things, so many other scandals. It's actually a small percentage of the population, but that should never be used as an excuse or a minimization for pastors behaving badly. And we behave badly in so many different ways. Sexual affairs, financial scandals, nepotism, abuse of church members and congregants in all kinds of different ways, including usually a cover-up that is later discovered where they tried to cover up their misdeeds to keep their job. Believe me, if you're skeptical of pastors, it's your first time in church or your first time in a long time, believe me, I'm, I'm more skeptical than you are. I've seen and heard more than you have. And that's why today's passage is so important. Today's passage, let me warn you on the front side, is going to be a little bit difficult but we're, because we're quite literally reading somebody else's mail. And the letter that we're reading today, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, is actually correspondence in a very heated and occasionally heartbroken relationship. 
The reason we're doing it is because we're going straight through the book and the question that Paul has for us this morning that can be so helpful to me to keep me on the rails, to keep all the pastors on this staff on the rails, to keep small group leaders and deacons and church board members and Sunday school teachers, all of those who dare minister in the name of Jesus, it can help us stay on the path because Paul is going to tell us how we can know if a Christian leader has integrity. It's a vitally important question. It's a question you should know the answer to. And the Bible says much more than this. But this heartbroken, very personal letter from Paul to a church who his preaching started tells you enough to know whether the pastor you're listening to, the church you're considering, is the kind of leader that deserves your personal trust. Only Jesus, of course, deserves your absolute trust. Only Jesus himself will never fail you or forsake you. Any other person on this, in this world in whom you put your trust will at least eventually disappoint you, if only because of their human frailty and sinfulness. But it's vitally important that Christian leaders, that church leaders, though we will never be sinless, have sufficient integrity, sufficient Christ-likeness, enough biblical qualification to mirror in some small way the name and the image of the Lord we claim to serve. It's what you should expect from me and the rest of the pastoral staff. It's what you should expect anyone who has the trust from you to open the Bible, to give you guidance, to give you wisdom. So in our church, that would be Pastor Gregory, who was just up here singing, and Pastor Byron, and Pastor Rob, and Pastor Jim, and Pastor Jeff, who does so much of our biblical counseling. We desperately need to, we want to be men, be church leaders who avoid scandal. We don't want to add another sad chapter to the history of the local church because we failed to practice what we preached. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, in his, this very vulnerable letter, is going to give you three markers for the integrity of a Christian leader. He's going to do so in a way that you can tell if you've read the whole letter carefully, he's a little bit embarrassed about. He's embarrassed for two reasons. One, Paul genuinely would rather not talk about himself, and that's always a good sign in a spiritual leader if they would rather talk about Jesus than themselves. Paul has been pained, pressured, and shamed into talking about himself, talking about his behavior, talking about his motives, because if he doesn't, this fractious relationship with the church whose, Paul, whose preaching Paul started is going to dissolve. The church is already divided. How divided are they? Well, they're the kind of church where the members sue one another. They're the kind of church that not only has sexual immorality in the heart of the church, they're the kind of church that celebrates and covers up for that sexual immorality, falsely saying something like this, well, if God loves to forgive sin, let's give him plenty to forgive. Isn't this freedom that we all enjoy in Christ so wonderful? They're the kind of church that picks a favorite preacher and has contempt for the others. They're the kind of high-minded church that apparently seems to believe that based on their gifting and based on their wealth and based on their influence and their notoriety, remember I told you last week a contemporary pastor said if Paul were writing this letter now, he may call it first and second Californians. 
The eyes of the world are quite literally on Corinth. Much of the wealth of the world passes through it. As my grandmother would say, they're not conceited, they're convinced. They're filled with pride. So much pride that they're turning their back on the apostle. They're questioning his integrity. And now Paul has to write this heartbroken, sad letter to explain himself. And in so doing, God gave us a sure guide of knowing what kind of person we can trust in ministry. We're reading somebody else's mail, so you're going to see some strange words there like Macedonia. Let me very quickly tell you where we are. We're in the city of Corinth in the bottom of Greece. Macedonia is a region to their north. And Paul wants to come through the Corinthian church again to collect an offering that the Corinthians have said they're delighted to participate in. He wants to come through Corinth and take money back to Jerusalem because their Jewish Christians, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, all the way over in Jerusalem are starving. And it's one of the most spectacular things ever because idolatrous pagans now trust Jesus. And they trust Jesus so much, they want to give of their financial wealth so that Jews they've likely never met across the Aegean Sea can have some relief from poverty. But for reasons that I'm going to explain, Paul wasn't able to keep his original plans. He had promised them in 1 Corinthians 16 at the end of the first letter that he wrote them that he would come by and see them and spend there as much time as he could but the relation was so bitter. Here's how it broke down. Paul started the church in preaching 18 months in Corinth. Anywhere Paul went, they almost always chased him out of town trying to kill him. In Corinth, he had the privilege of staying and teaching them about Jesus in person while he paid his own bills by working his trade as a tent maker for a year and a half. Let me ask you, do you think your Christian life would be better if Paul himself taught you for a year and a half? you got to put up with me once a week. If you had personal access and relationship with Paul for a year and a half, you would think you would be miles ahead, but they weren't. Their old sins clung to them closely. So Paul wrote them a letter that he refers to in the Bible, but is not in the Bible telling them to stop it with the sexual immorality. They don't take it particularly well. Paul goes to them and sends them letters and makes painful visits trying to reconcile with them and it is to no avail. So in 2 Corinthians, he opens his heart and begins to explain himself. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. After explaining that his previous experience nearly killed him and he had actually given up on life itself, but he is glad for it because he had learned to trust God in it. In verse 11, you can see Paul trying to rekindle the relationship he once enjoyed with them. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. In other words, the subtext here in context of the whole letter, stop judging us and start praying for us. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. Paul's now going to open up his conscience. 
to the Corinthians. And the first thing he's going to tell you, I'm going to read you the paragraph and hopefully we'll all understand it better, but the first sure mark of a leader who has Christian integrity, who represents Jesus well, is this. They keep their conscience clear. If you're serving in the name of Jesus, please, first, keep your conscience clear. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and on the consciousness of sin in your life. And if you know if something is wrong between you and God or between you and another Christian, please, number one, keep your conscience clear. Verse 12. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Verse, verse 12 is key. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying our conscience before God, by God's grace, is clear. We know how we acted while we were with you. We acted with simplicity and we acted with godly sincerity. We didn't do this with earthly wisdom. In other words, we weren't there following man's traditions. It wasn't even good manners. We did this by the grace of God, and we were especially good to you. That's one reason Paul's heart is so broken. You ever heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished? Paul could have written that over the top of 2 Corinthians. He has given everything he has to these people, including surrendering all the privileges that pertain to him as an apostle who brought them the gospel, and instead they are questioning whether he loves them at all. They're questioning his word. He goes on in verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you had read and understand, than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord, of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What does this mean? Paul says the letter that is coming to you is coming from the same heart, the same conscience, the same man you met all those years ago. Nothing has changed. It's very clear that you don't really know us as you claim to, but nothing has changed, and I'm hoping this letter will help. And please hear this. It's weird to hear a Christian preacher talk about boasting, so let me put it in contemporary language so that you can understand what Paul is saying because it's vitally important to guide our lives right here and right now. Paul is saying this. We're proud of you. We remember what kind of people you were. If you read both letters, they were a mess. They were scandalous even in the ancient world. Corinth, if you will, was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was a place where you went to lose yourself, to debauch yourself. It literally became a verb, I told you last week, to Corinthianize meant to completely let yourself go. Just let the reins go altogether. Just give yourself over to wildness and debauchery and things that you will never be able to tell anybody. That's what Corinth was like. And Paul says, and such were some of you. You used to be like that. And now we're conscious that someday we are going to stand before the Lord Jesus. Someday Jesus will call us both to account. And we're proud of you. We want you. Think about the humility of this. We're proud of you. We would like you to be proud of us. 
Paul is the greatest Christian in the history of Christianity. Even among the apostles, he excelled all of them. And listen to the tenderness and the humility of the greatest preacher and the greatest follower of Jesus that ever lived, saying to these people who keep stabbing in the, in the back and breaking his heart, I'm so proud of you because of what Jesus did for you. I'm writing you, I'm sending you Timothy, I'm sending you these letters, I'm making painful personal visits because I want you to be proud of me. The first sign of a leader with integrity is they keep their conscience clear. If you have any spiritual responsibility at this church and your conscience is not clear toward God, remember the grace that brought you to Jesus in the first place and make it right. Don't let it linger. Because the easiest thing to do in the contemporary world in a town like ours that has four churches on this avenue alone just within our city limits is to have your conscience wounded or get your feelings hurt and leave. And Paul is not going to do that with the Corinthians. He knows that he only has a brief time with, this, with them on earth. That's true of all of us. We only have a brief time with one another the mark of a good spiritual leader who's the people he's teaching are listening and following Jesus is they reconcile and they stay together knowing that someday they will appear before Jesus. It's one of the most sobering things in the Bible to me. It's found in Hebrews 13. I'll teach it to you another time. It says that someday I will give an account for you. Now, that's sobering because there's too many of you for me to personally know and invest in, know personally and deeply the way I used to when there are only about 150 people here. And I praise God for that growth. But what it does mean is that someday you and I, because you were part of this church family, if only for a time, someday Jesus will call me to account over the time that I had with you. And he'll ask the same of you, by the way. And what we want, according to Paul, is to be proud of each other. To say that you behaved well and that I behaved well and we both acted like Christians so that when we actually see Christ, the conscience that we fought so hard to keep clear will be rewarded by the blessings of the Lord himself as he evaluates and rewards the life we lived after he saved us. That's number one, a clear conscience. The second thing, I'll just tell you on the front side before we read about it, is a leader with Christian integrity, number two, keep their word because they honor Christ. They're not wishy-washy and back and forth. They're not self-serving. They keep a promise even to their own hurt. They have integrity not only in their conscience, which is interior, they also have integrity to always keep their word because people who are saved by a God who keeps promises should keep their own too. We're going to come to one of the richest, most Christ-centered passages in the entire New Testament in just a few verses. Paul's not going to be able to help himself. It doesn't actually pertain to his argument because what he's trying to do is reconcile this relationship. But by way of reaching out 
and explaining to them that contrary to their belief, he actually is a man of his word, he's going to go on a little sidebar and just completely go over the top, go off, go crazy, talking about all the promises that Jesus kept for him. Look with me, please. Second Timothy, not Timothy, Second Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Listen, here's the point of contention. You're reading somebody else's mail, but here's why Paul was getting attacked. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. Remember, that's to their north. And to come back to you, in other words, from north back to Corinth in the south. I wanted you to visit on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Can you see it now? They're down in the south of Greece. Paul said, my intention, as he promised them in 1 Corinthians 15, was to come through Corinth, spend a good amount of time with them. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, he didn't want a quick visit. He wanted to spend a long time with them and go to Corinth, up to Macedonia to visit other churches. Churches like the Thessalonians are up in Macedonia. And then on the way back down, see them again, receive the offering that they've collected for those starving Christians in Jerusalem, and then go across the Aegean Sea with their offering to bring relief from the Corinthians to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. Well, that was the plan, but he didn't do it. And his critics said, see, this guy has no word. He claims he loves us. He sends us letters. He visits. You may know, you may notice one of his letters talks all about love. The other letter's really harsh. He names names. He's all over the place. He has no integrity. He does not keep his word. If you'll skip ahead with me, Paul will explain why. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. For I made my mind, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have paid? And I, rose, I wrote as I did. So that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. That's a lot to understand if you're reading somebody else's mail. Let me ask you this. Have you ever not made the phone call or the personal visit because you thought it would make it worse? The relationship is so heated, it ended so poorly the last time you talked that even though your heart is breaking and you can't wait to grab the phone and call or text them or show up and talk it over, you think to yourself, I got to hold back because if I show up right now, it's only going to get worse. Ever done that? That's what Paul's doing here. And his critics say, see, man has no word, doesn't keep his promises. Paul's going to answer 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? 
Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? In other words, am I the kind of guy that says whatever fits the occasion, having no intention to keep it? Am I really a self-serving person that says yes one minute and no the next? Here's his answer. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Here's why Paul keeps his word. Fellow pastors, here's why we should keep ours. Verse 26, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's another dense phrase. That's hard to understand, but you just saw a picture of it when Randy and Gaby Browning got baptized. You couldn't see what I could see because I was standing right next to them. They were beaming. He was so excited, I thought we might have to give him something in the back. Okay? <laughs> Randy was so fired up. He didn't really walk to the baptistry. He just kind of floated above the steps and down into the water. Paul says, through Christ, we say amen. We agree with God, and it all comes out to God's glory. In other words, Paul says, I keep my word because Paul, God kept his word to me. God promised to send his son to die for my sins, and Jesus did. All the promises that God made are kept, Paul says, in Christ, and I represent him, so of course I'm not going to be the kind of man that says yes one day and no the next. And from your spiritual leaders, from Sunday school teachers all the way to church board members and pastors, you should expect that we will be men and women of our word. That we keep our promises, that we say what we mean because we represent Jesus to you and we are your family in Christ. And then Paul, as I was trying to explain to you, goes off and tells us that the promises that God kept are so very precious. Look with me please in verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now that's a sidebar. That has absolutely nothing to do with the personal conflict that Paul is suffering through with the Corinthians, but it actually makes all the difference. Paul is saying, I keep my word to you because God has been so very good to me and he's also been so very good to you. Here's the grace of Paul. These are fractious, litigious, sex-crazed, awful people in this church. They're Christians, but they're behaving like the pagans they once were. They're trampling on the sacrifice of Jesus. It got so bad, if you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to find out but Paul says that some of them have behaved so badly that God was making some people in the church sick and others had died. You imagine going to a Lord's Supper service where people start dropping dead? God is taking the sin of this church seriously. But before he gets down to correcting them, Paul tells them, here's how gracious he is. How much Paul... 
Rather, God has already done for the Corinthians. He has treated the Corinthians the same way he treated Paul. Verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and also he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Look at all the things that Paul says God did even for these Corinthians because God does this for all Christians. Number one, he establishes us. In other words, we're secure. And my number one Bible reading tip, slow down. Notice that's in the present tense. God is establishing you right now. Your faith in Christ, your position in Christ is secure because God is making sure of it. When is he doing it? He's doing it right now. It's not even a one-time thing with God. He is continually establishing you. Years ago, a pastor went around the country, an evangelist rather, went around the country filling altars at churches, including this one many years ago, by asking congregations and crowds this question. Are you absolutely sure, living the way you're living, that you'd go to heaven? And people would rush forward and cry and beg to be saved. People who I knew had every evidence to believe, had been Christians their entire lives, were very concerned about their salvation. And I thought about his question, and here's the problem. The question was, are you 100% sure, living the way you're living, that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? Here's my answer. Living the way I'm living? No. Living the way I'm living, I'll split hell wide open. Why? Because I sin every day. Same as you. Here's the gospel. It's never been about the way you live even for a single day. The gospel announces that you're saved not because of the way you live, but because of the way Jesus lives. Jesus lived righteously and perfectly in your place, traded his life with yours by dying on the cross for your sins. And according to this verse and many others, he's giving you his own life right now. He's still establishing you. Not only that, verse 21, he has anointed us. In other words, we're not only secured, but we're also empowered for ministry. Verse 22, who has also put his seal on us. In other words, we are, when God puts his seal on us, he represents that we belong to him, that we are his. And then it says, and he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He gives us his own spirit because not only do we belong to God, God belongs to us. And his spirit is in your heart as a guarantee, or it could also be translated, check this out as a down payment. You know how generous God is? He promised you the riches of Christ himself. Paul says in another letter that we are joint heirs with Christ. In other words, we have an equal share in the inheritance in the riches of Jesus. And that promise is going to be kept and so that we would know that the promise is going to be kept. You know what God did? He poured his Holy Spirit into your heart. He gave you himself as a down payment. God guarantees all that he will give you with his own life, with his own self. That's how much he loves you. And Paul knows this, and this is why Paul knows that he's established 
and that he's empowered and that he is secure and that he belongs to God and God belongs to him. No wonder Paul is insisting on keeping his word. How can someone who has been blessed by a God that keeps promises like that be wishy-washy and double-minded about keeping his own? He's not. So always insist that the people who lead you and guide you and teach you spiritually be people of their word. And then at the end, Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. In other words, I didn't want to make it worse. I didn't want to be heavy. I didn't want to be harsh. I knew our relationship was already very fragile. Verse 24. I'm nearly done, but I need you to hear this. And I especially want my fellow pastors to hear verse 24 because it's one of the most important verses in the New Testament to guide pastoral ministry. Not that we lord it over your faith. In other words, pastors are not tyrants. We're under shepherds. We're a part of the flock too. Jesus alone is the good shepherd. Pastors are not CEOs. We're decision makers and leaders. But we're not bosses in the sense of someone who lords it over somebody, big times them, big leagues them with their authority, their power, the trust that they've been given. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for, what's it say? For your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Look down to verse 2. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. In other words, I thought we were on the same page. I thought we knew what Jesus had done for all of us. Verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant, what's it say there? Love that I have for you. So the third mark and the real proof of a spiritual leader who has integrity, who represents Jesus well, is this. They keep working through the conflict to help you have joy in Jesus and faith in Jesus. We work with you for your joy. If a spiritual leader ever has to correct you, if he or she is a man or a woman of integrity, they are doing it for your greater joy. We are doing it so that you will have a stronger faith in Jesus when that difficult conversation is over. We do so because, verse 4, we love you. This is so important. Here's where we've gone astray, church. With so many options, with four churches on this avenue alone, plus countless churches available through the internet, Church and easily become, in the minds of both Christians and pastors, a product to be consumed. And that's not what God intended. He intended it for, to be a spiritual family. With God alone as the Father and Jesus as the head of the church. Just older brothers and sisters, but with a few of them set aside, called, empowered by God, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, to lead and to serve the rest of the flock for their own work and ministry. 
And what happens in a, church, in, an, in a culture like ours that has so many very different choices, the minute something goes wrong, and it can happen from the pastor's side or the people's side, things get uncomfortable, people bail. Pastor puts his resume out there, church members start visiting another church, and things aren't working well at the place where I used to consume Christianity, I'm going to another I'm not saying there's not a time to leave. There's always a time to leave. But a good Christian leader sticks with you. And if you're being led by someone with integrity, God would have you stick with them so that together you work through those conflicts because they're working for your joy and your greater faith in Jesus. Conflict resolve leads to so much better, so much closer relationships. And according to the last verse I read you, the Christian leader with integrity will do this for the same reason that God works in your life, because they love you. So if it hasn't been clear through our ministry, and I believe that it has, and I pray that it has, let me tell you, to the pastor that's talking to you and the other pastors represented on the back of that bulletin, the other vocational ministers, the women who serve beside us in their areas of ministry, we do it for one primary reason, because we love you. Pastor Gregory Pierce loves you. If you've ever spent even 20 minutes with Gregory Pierce, that comes across rather quickly. We love you. We're looking ahead to our time with Jesus when we stand together that the joy will begin now and be perfect there. That conflict that we may endure, and we've had such a sweet, beautiful, peaceful season in our church for years now, and I praise God for it, and I'm not superstitious, so I'm going to mention it out loud and praise God for it right now. <laughs> we will do that, and we will continue to do that because that's what God wants. We work together with you for your joy so you will have greater faith in Jesus. And we do this because we love you. Gregory and Rob and Byron and Jim and Jeff and I, we do. It's the grace of God first poured into our hearts, extended to yours, and so much love coming back to us because you love and serve Jesus too. The point of this message is simple. Ministries that present God to people should exhibit his grace, should exhibit his love, should exhibit his character. That's the kind of church we strive to be. As a church member, that's the kind of church you should insist we be. And when things get difficult, that is the church you should pray and strive for so that we can return to what God has for us. A church without scandal that presents the character and the beauty of Jesus because he first kept so many promises to us. Let's pray together.